We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining us for this episode is Packy Bonner. This is the one we did on Friday with the North American Soccer Coaches. So, Packy was a hero to so many in my generation. 1990 World Cup. It felt like every neighbourhood, everyone wanted to be Packy Bonner and goals. There's only time I ever remember growing up that anyone wanted to be a goalkeeper. Apart from the Rene Higuita three days after he did the scorpion kick against England. But everyone wanted to be Packy Bonner that summer. Uh, Celtic legend, Republic of Ireland legend. Wanted to chat about just his experiences in those World Cups. Playing for different managers and then moving on to the coaching side as well. Technical advisor to UEFA. I remember doing my licenses back in Belfast in 2003. And Packy was up involved in that. And, and he was absolutely brilliant. So really excited to chat to him. You're going to love this. Some unbelievable stories. Unbelievable perspective. And a lot of humour in here as well. Fantastic. Please let me know what you think. At Gary Kareen on Instagram. At Gary Kareen on Twitter. Also, there's loads and loads of webinars that we've uploaded on the Modern Soccer Coach podcast, modernsoccercoach.com, go to latest. Also, we've put a new job section up there as well for you to check out. We've got new jobs, assistant coach position posted from University of Arkansas, Little Rock. We've also got an assistant coach position at Cornell University, so please check those out on the website as well. Here is Packy. Enjoy. Packy, thanks so much for joining me for the for the podcast with North American Irish coaches. Super excited to have you on. Uh, pleasure to be on, and I'm sorry I can't uh, you can't see my face. I'm getting very old, and <laughs> I'm also the grey hair, and it's getting very long because of this close down. So maybe it's a good job that you're not actually able to see me. So anyway, you hear my voice. So but delighted to be on and talk to everybody that's out there. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, easy one to start for you. So I, I just thought I'd go from this right off the bat. The toughest environment and, and looking in, at your journey and all these experiences, you've got the quarterfinal in Rome against the hosts. You've got the old firm derbies, which were unbelievable back in the day. And then this qualifier that I was actually at as a kid in Belfast in 1993. Which one was the was the toughest one? Well, you started with a good question, didn't you? Uh, uh, absolutely. Listen, the three of them were huge occasions. Um, I, I would take the, the one in Rome out of it a little bit because I think we were so happy in, to be in that position, uh, to be able to play in the quarterfinal of a World Cup against the host nation in Rome. I think we were all just delirious and also very happy to be in the situation. So I, I wouldn't call even that pressure. Um of course, you have to go out and play the game, but uh, it was an enjoyable, hugely enjoyable experience. I think, I think the other other two um, 
probably if you, if you look at the old firm games i used to love the old firm, uh, firm games especially going into ibrox uh actually going into the lion's den you could call it where you weren't expected to win a game you were expected maybe to get beat in many occasions because the home side would have the advantage but i love going and putting one over on, on them <laughs> to be perfectly honest um uh, listen the first couple of games uh, against uh, any old firm game is, is always daunting and you have to get yourself psychologically ready for it. I remember on one occasion that I was very, uh, very nervous, actually, maybe because of form or maybe because we had lost a few games and then we were going to play uh, Rangers at Ibrox. And I, I remember talking to Danny Brain and, and, and saying to him, Danny, feeling a bit overwhelmed and a bit uh, nervous about the whole thing. And he said, don't worry, Sonny, don't worry, he says, because... You know, and he was a great man, Danny. He would give you great advice. And uh, he said to me that nerves is a good thing. Um, um, it gets you going, gets the adrenaline going, gets gets you pumped up a little bit. But if you're over nervous, if you're really over nervous, then it drains your energy. Uh, and that was brilliant advice for me because, I, you know, I could settle down. Uh, I think probably this was the day before the game and, the, and I could settle down and then almost control my nerves going into it. Um, and then enjoy it, enjoy it. Listen, listen if, if you won an old firm game, especially the Ibrox, um, you're right, aye. <laughs> but if you lost it, of course, it was a different kettle of fish. Um, I think the other game that you mentioned uh, going into Northern Ireland, that, that was an incredible experience. Um, and uh, if you were at that game, you were, must be one of the few uh, supporters, <laughs> Republic of Ireland supporters anyway, that was there on the night. So it was, it was full of Northern Ireland supporters. Obviously, the majority of them might have beat Rangers supporters at that particular time. And, uh, you know, the atmosphere was really, really, really intense. And, uh, you know, travelling down, I think we stayed in the New Hotel uh, up in Monaghan. We travelled over the border and down and then into Windsor Park. And the Windsor Park at that time was the old stadium. It's a fantastic stadium now, by the way, uh, but it was the old stadium. And, and the one thing I do remember about that particular uh, game was when you went out, and even in the warm-up, the floodlights, incredibly, they were actually right in, you know, there was a bit of a kind of a slope of the pitch, um, and the floodlights were almost in your eye, especially for crosses. And remember that goal that Jimmy Quinn Jimmy scored? Mm. <laughs> the volley, wasn't it? Yeah. Volley, yeah, absolutely. Well, that cut was right in the light. I didn't have a clue where it was. I stuck up my hand, hoping that it was going to, I was going to maybe get a touch on it. But to be honest, I couldn't even see the ball. So it was really an intimidating stadium from that perspective. And then with the crowd, you know, behind right around the stadium and in behind the goals, you know, you were you were under a lot, a lot of pressure. But we, you know, listen, we came out at top. And, and that was the most important thing in that. But you've got to be able to handle, you know, handle. I was listening to Johnny Giles, only enough today, uh, or yesterday, he was on News Talk Radio, and he was fantastic. And he was talking about the current climate where, you know, players are out playing now with no crowd in the stadium. And he was saying, how would that affect the players? Would it have a negative effect? And he was saying, no, he says, because professional players, um, and, he, and he's right in what he says, almost are. Uh, kind of almost conditioned to to get the crowd out of your mind and almost and he's and, and the other great thing he said was that the crowd reacts from players actions not the other way around um, and that's where you have to control yourself and manage yourself and been able to to have a have a system um, and a process that that almost clears the head and and, and going and now if you're playing well um, you know and 
you've, you're in good form going into these games, then there isn't a problem. The big test comes when maybe you're, you haven't been in good form and you have to then just psych yourself up. Yeah, the, like, again, looking at those environments, the, the 91 that you said was just a great experience was almost like a festival, all the great things of football, but like 93 experience will go down as like a dark, it was a dark night. It's like, was that a case of you didn't really celebrate on that occasion? Did you just get out of there as quick as possible or was there some celebrations? Yeah. No, no, we got out. We got out very quickly. Um, to be honest, we, we uh, went down. Now, Jack had organised it that, that we would stay up in the New Irmore and County Mona and then, that we would get over the border and just go and play the game. I think, that, uh, I think they also, the, uh, the police, the guardie on one side of the border and the police on the other side had arranged uh, that, you know, to make sure that there was no incidents or anything that we were going to get in and get out very, very quickly. So it was just getting in, doing the work, doing the, doing the job in hand. Uh, getting the result, of course, which was great, and then getting back out, getting back out as quick as possible. So no, no issues there. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, we had a one of your, or what? Sorry, someone contacted me on Twitter when it, when they said we were doing this interview, and his he's the grandson of a coach of yours, Frank Connor, at Celtic. <laughs> so he asked me if I would do a big favor and ask oh, him man. what what was his grandfather like it's actually a great question what was my grandfather like as a coach and would that still work today <laughs> well frank actually him and margaret his wife i was just in a little video the other day a, a congratulation video because we were 60 years married believe it or not frank's in his 80s now um and that but but frank when i came to Southwark park initially very very at the very start way back in 1977 frank was there he was kind of working with the reserves and it was him that would actually went out to watch me play, and I, and I played a, a junior game for Colt Nash United against uh, East Kilbride Thistle. The Celtic, it was bad weather, and Celtic had no games on, but he wanted to see me play. So I played a junior game under an assumed name, believe it or not. My very first game in Scotland, and Frank came out to watch uh, watch me play. But Frank had a huge influence on my career. He, he was a, I would have put it, he, he was he was a throwback a little bit to the sergeant major type uh, coach. Um, he was the one that, um, of all the players, you know, all the players will will, will testify to this, and, and they will talk about Frank in high esteem, even though you know he was a, he was a demanding coach. But you know, you had to have your your jersey inside your pants. You had to have your socks pulled up. There was no nonsense with Frank, and he knew what it took to play for Celtic Football Club, uh, and and he made sure that we understood and knew that also so from a from an environment point of view frank was brilliant now he, he really tested you he he, uh, he and, and he and he called you know no punches he, he would tell you exactly what he thought which was fine and we had to handle that too he made us into winners i think when we were that you know i was 18 years old when i was over there um and and there was no underage uh, as you would call the academy system at that time it was reserves the first team so frank's job was to prepare us get us ready to get into that first team and that meant that he had to put winning mentality inside us and put the right conditions you know that making sure that we knew what it took to play for celtic uh what is under pressure when we had to be uh and all of that type of stuff he had his lovely uh he had his own way of of getting out in the picture there was a there was a lot of conditioning work a lot of small boxes you know which which celtic played at that particular time we played a lot of uh, what we called mad mentals about at that time was the, 
almost the reserves against the, the first team and uh, sometimes it would be more than 11 v 11 but we went out and played and that in itself tested us against the first team first team players and Frank would be there kind of almost um, you know telling you the things you did well but certainly telling you things that you had to improve on. So, but I had a fantastic relationship with Frank because he was an ex-goalkeeper. Also, uh, he played for Derry City and played for Bangor, I think it was, uh, in Northern Ireland League. Uh, so we had a wee feel for the Irish psychic also. Uh, but uh, to this day, we still speak. Myself and Billy Stark takes him out for a bit of lunch when we can. It's been a while since we've been out with him, so that's overdue. Uh, but all Frank wants to talk about is football talk about the good old days and that's brilliant when you sit down with him because he had that unbelievable passion and I, I want to tell you a story about my own son Andrew who later when, when he started to play football he was about 1920 um, he had just left Queen's Park um, and uh, he was trying to find a club to, to, to continue his career and he went out and played starting Albion for a little while and then he went in to play with Albion Rovers and who was the manager of that under 21 team or whatever was Frank Connor. And Andrew used, Andrew used to come home after training and all that feeling that he was like Pele, feeling, feeling that he was going to be this unbelievable player because Frank had almost conditioned himself um, to say, hey, you can do it. You are the man. You can do it. And, and it was just a throwback to our day that he says, listen, you have to do A, B, and C, but you can actually go and take on these big boys and be part of it. So, so I have huge time, Frank. And and when he when he survived today, and and some of the methods that he that he that he put players under a little bit of pressure, um, I think the honesty of Frank would get him through. I think the honesty, um, and I think players love honesty. I think they, they they also like to be told what what is true and not be gonna almost taken through about two or three years with nobody giving them, putting them under that bit of pressure. I think players would, would, would love Frank from that perspective. Maybe from a coaching perspective, he would have to update himself a little bit for, for what's going on at the moment. Um, but and from a man management point of view, no problem. Brilliant. My memories as a as a child was that the, the 90 was, and I was up north and it's still, it, it just was the summer of like football festival and it was all about Ireland. It was all about that. I mean, everyone knows where they were in the Romanian penalty shootout, all the excitement. But in 1994, again, how I viewed it was there was a, it was a little bit, like there was always the stuff about the, the heat. There was the water breaks. There was Jack and Aldridge fighting with the officials. How did, how did the, was one campaign, did it feel a lot differently from the other or were the two of them just special? No, there was a huge difference. There was a huge difference. And they, should, they probably shouldn't have been because you were, you were in two World Cups, you know, you were playing against the best players in the world and there was Ireland that you were playing for. But from from a personal point of view, from my own point of view, um, it was it was so much different. Italy, of course, was a one-off because it was the first time we were in a World Cup and because we had qualified out of the group and then the penalty shootout and then getting to Italy and everything was, was on a high. 
uh, and but also because we were playing in a, a country, Italy, which football was their their first sport. Football was a passion to them, uh, and you know, and it was a small country, so you could get around it quite easily. And you know, even when we weren't playing, there was games on. Uh, you would be in the bedroom, and you would you had TV, and you had the games on, and you would hear maybe the Italians would have been playing, and or something else, and you would hear the noise outside, and that it was a wonderful atmosphere around it. Take, take that on four years and you go down to Orlando where we, we had set up training camp. And I remember going from the hotel over to the, the mall, doing a little bit of shopping, and Americans didn't even know the World Cup was on. <laughs> the Americans didn't even know the World Cup was on. And, you know, you, you ended also, you know, I don't think the the TV stations out there at that particular time was really into, into football, soccer. Um, um, I remember it was really difficult to get the other games and getting any build up to the other games. You know, the, the game would come on about four minutes beforehand. You know, I'm, I'm probably telling you guys, a lot of you guys is living out in America what it was like then, but you know, you had four minutes of a, of, of a lead into a game and then you had the commentator and uh, the, 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 the co commentator, and then the game was over and it was about four minutes and the game was gone. You know, you were over. And part of, part of the whole thing is the build up. Part of the whole thing is taking part in the, in the game, but also then the reflection afterwards. And that just wasn't there in, in America at that particular time. Maybe we were tuning in, in into the wrong stations, I'm not too sure, but but certainly we couldn't find it. And then the other big thing for America, apart from the conditions, was that he also felt that there was many tournaments in different states, you know, in different parts. Like I think we were supposed to be up in Boston, but we did, we got the lucky straw, unlucky straw, and ended mm -hmm. up down in Florida. But then, you know, you had, you had that little tournament going on up there, then you had a tournament in Chicago and one out the West, and, and, and then you had almost down in Florida, and it was like almost little mini tournaments, and there was no connection, uh, I felt, at, at that particular time to the, to the rest of the tournament. Uh, but the heat, the heat and, and the conditions was quite a, was incredible. Um, you know, we trained, as I said to you, we had, we, we had a training camp down there, the build-up to uh, the particular uh, tournament starting, and um, I lost 10 pounds in sweat the first training session. It was mm. quite incredible. I, I moved, you know, when you walk from the pavilion across to the pitch, you were absolutely drenched. Um, and, you know, we didn't, have a, I, we didn't have a goalkeeper coach at the time, so you were actually doing goalkeeping and then to step out and do do almost a serving for the other goalkeeper, which was Jerry Payton. Uh, oh, sorry, at that particular time, it, um, it was Alan Kelly. Um, and um, it was really, really difficult, uh, really difficult. I found it difficult and, and it affected me deeply, I think, because the preparation I felt wasn't um, wasn't what I was used to. You know, 20 minutes into a training session, maybe you had to stop because of thunder and lightning. Maybe also you had to stop because you were pretty knackered uh, and you weren't even getting in your normal hour and 15 minutes. Um, so I found it all, even going into the games, uh, even into the first game against Italy, um, I just felt an unease. And you remember, I was 34 years old at that point. I wasn't a young boy. So I found it, I found it much more difficult than what happened in Italy. Maybe because we were in a high, we were winning things and we were on this roller coaster. Yeah, the, in your book, you say that you could have used a psychologist when you were going through that tournament. Uh, was that, yeah, was I, that from a, a performance standpoint or was that just dealing with support and stress? I think I think the stress of it of it not not feeling that you were one hundred percent ready, even though we were, we were listen, we were way above one hundred percent because of the work we had done in 
leading into it and so on. But in, in the mind, the mind is a strange thing, especially in sport and, um, and especially if you're a goalkeeper, uh, you have to be, you have to almost clear the mind. And that's where I, I felt that maybe I needed somebody. Remember also that Jerry Payton was not there. He was a very, very important fixture in 1990 for me uh, as, as, as a, a colleague, a roommate, but also he was older and it was like as if you had that goalkeeper coach always rooming with you on a daily basis, you know. And he was brilliant because he gave me great advice and, and we were sitting, we'd talk about football and we could relax. Alan Kelly was a younger one coming in and uh, even though Alan and me get on fantastically well and, and, and uh, it was a different relationship, um, maybe I should have been the psychologist a little bit and the goalkeeper coach for him, but I was playing, uh, I was in the team. Uh, which was quite different, but I think I think I needed somebody to just sit down and tell me that I was fine, that everything was okay, uh, that your performance level is okay, and and um, you have you had done the work leading into it. So somebody just like that, even a, you know, when I say a psychologist, I probably think that the goalkeeper coach is a bit of a psychologist in many ways also. Uh, so either or, somebody that you you could really just. Um, just allow you to prepare mentally and mentally preparation for me is 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 hugely hugely important in goalkeeping brings us along nicely so the the tournament in 1990 obviously the the shootout against romania and then the, now we have it's pretty common practice or definitely mainstream now to see opposing kickers with the goalkeepers with the, the information written in water bottles when they're taking penalties. And I'm, I'm guessing and assuming that you didn't know the information. If you did, would you want that information today? I think it would have helped a little bit, uh, a little bit more information, but that wasn't the done thing in those days. You, you, you knew players because you maybe played against them at club level. Um, not the Romanian players as such. We knew Hadji. Um, he was a terrific, terrific player. Great ability, great ability. You know, I, I uh, work uh, with UEFA and uh, Juan Lopez, who, who was one of the penalty takers. He was the captain of the team, actually. He played at the back. He was a young guy. But he was um, in a position in UEFA. Uh, and I, I talked to him every so often, and he was part of the whole staff there. Um, and he, he told me that Hadji was their key player, but he... he uh, he played on the periphery of things, you know. He didn't. He didn't uh, work his way back in to do the, a defensive role, but he was allowed to do that. They allowed him to do that, but he had to perform when he got a ball. He, he had to. He had to do something. They, they wouldn't have put up with it unless he could do something, and he certainly could do something. He had a couple of fantastic strikes in that game leading in. So I, I was in, in, in good form and uh, in, in, in relation to that penalty shootout, but I didn't know any of the other. Uh, Takers, even one of the best, but I didn't really know about him too much uh, at that point time. But we'd worked out a plan stuff and Jerry after the, the Scottish Cup final, and, and which I wasn't very successful. And we'd worked out this particular plan of, of how he walked up to the ball, the position he took after they, they placed the ball, um, and all of that. And, and it worked, to be perfectly honest. Um, so if I, if I answer your question, probably, is that it's great to know something about it. If I, even if I go back to the Scottish Cup final when, when I went the wrong way for eight, probably eight out of nine penalties, the first penalty was Jim Beck's penalty. He was a normal penalty taker, so I knew exactly where he was putting the ball and I went the right way and I nearly saved it. I got my finger touches to it. So I had a little bit of knowledge and understanding of who the players are, what foot they hit what, um, and so on and so forth. And if they have taken penalties in the past, um, you know, 
I think I think most of us will agree that uh, you can get the information quite readily now. You you can go on the internet. You can look at games. You know, wisely. You can actually look at, at at games throughout the world, and you can go back and research things, which is a great help in many ways. Uh, but in those days, it wasn't there for us. So to, to 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 really say a little bit of balance, you can overdo it. You need you need to be able to make up your own mind. You need to have your own plan. Uh, and then you need to then try and psych out the players that's coming up to, to take the penalty. Um, and, and if you go the right way in a penalty shootout, you have a real chance of saving it. Hmm. Packy, I'm going to play a quick 30-second, 45-second video up here on the webinar for the coaches, and it's got you kicking the ball against England, and you give this look. You'll probably hear the commentary coming on here in two seconds. Cascarino, won by Butcher. Now here's Sheedy. Sheedy's won it back, and Sheedy shoots. Then this one's against Holland. Yeah. I watching it. Tell everybody, and most people might have heard this already, so I'm repeating myself, but uh, forgive me for that. But uh, people, I came back home after that particular World Cup, and people said, You're a great motivator. Oh, I love that face you put on and uh, motivating the team. To be honest, guys, I was telling Mick McCarthy to fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was telling him to fuck, get up that pitch because he had come back two or three times looking for that short ball and, and I, I was kind of almost telling him get up there, you know what I mean? And uh, <laughs> and that gave me the adrenaline probably to kick the ball. Was that Nine's goal, wasn't it? No, uh, it was uh, it was Sheedy's goal. Oh, the, it was Sheedy's yeah. goal, right. Okay, that was Sheedy's goal. So there you are. But uh, there was no real... Uh, <laughs> there was no real... Um, I suppose uh, strategy about uh, about any of that and, and trying to put it into a certain area. What we had is we had a big guy up front. We had Nile Cohen up front. Uh, maybe Tony Casper you know, on the odd occasion if he came on or would have started the game. So we have always had that big guy up front. So it wasn't a case where you built the ball from the back in those days. Uh, so you had to play it into an up and high into an area, and hopefully then feed off. What, what Connie did or didn't do, uh, uh, and and that was it really. You know, um, I think in '94 the pass back was in. You know, came in in 1993, um, so it was a different kettle of fish then. Uh, we had to deal and think about it slightly different, not over too different, but slightly different. But whenever we're looking now at goalkeepers like Ederson, pings a ball 60, 70 yards, and we're in amazement of it. Do you think that that do you think you could still do that today? Do you think you could land a ball on top of the other 18 and have someone run on it or get a second ball from it? Um, well, you know, I, I remember playing against Spain um, down in uh, Seville, I think it was actually, and the pass back had just come in. Uh, it must have been 93 qualifying for the World Cup. I'm nearly sure it was anyway. And the pass back had just come in and, and, and uh, of course, the players at that particular time they would pass the ball back to you, but they wouldn't get into a position to receive another pass, you know, to give you an opportunity. So you had to deal with it. And the, and the only way you could deal with it is you either took a touch and then played it long, or you had it first time. And I remember this particular game, uh, 
coming off the pitch because every ball that was played back to me, I hit it like a one-iron first time. Bang! And I caught it absolutely sweet spot every single time. And the ball pinged right up the middle of the pitch or into an area. Um, and I remember coming off at full time and Jack says, whoa, you're hitting that ball well. And it's just, whoa, you're hitting that ball really well. But there was no thought process around it. And it wasn't a thought process from myself or the players. It was almost a case where you had to deal with it. Deal with it. Now it's completely different. Uh, you know, I can talk you through what we're doing within coach education and all the things to, to really uh, think about how now the game's changed. I was talking to a, a coach, a goalkeeper coach who's on a working group with us with UEFA from Iceland. Uh, a great guy. He was part of the, the whole Iceland team that done so well in the Euro and, and the World Cup. And, uh, and he was talking during this close down that he was, um, he was um, looking back at old games. And he says, and, and it's not that long ago, I was looking at the games. Jans Lehmann was playing. And he says, and there was no build-up. And it was, I was playing it up into an area, playing it into an area. If you go back to the old days in England where you had goalkeepers, goalkeepers were picked by some coaches if they could put that ball right into a, a, almost a, 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 you know, a small box high up on the left-hand side of the pitch. But that's what they had to do because, because that's where, where the goalkeeper or the, or the manager, head coach, wanted him uh, to start the game from. Uh, and that goalkeeper had to be able to do that. So th there was no real too much thinking around it. It was more safety first. Mm. Now it's a completely different story. Mm. Last couple here, and then John can finish up with some from the crowd. Uh, my last two are about leadership. And in, in an era today, it seems to be where the successful coaches, like the Klops and the Pochettinos and their their warmth and their ability to connect to the player. Jack Charlton looked to be that way from the outside. What was he like? You just said you told me half off in a match. What was he like from a player's perspective? Uh, it wasn't him. It was Mick McCarthy. Oh, McCarthy. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't Jack. No, Jack, you, I don't think you would tell uh, that man that they half off too, too often. Um, but, no, listen, Jack was an incredible, um, incredible man. Um he made the game simple, you know, we, we all know that. He didn't want to put the ball at risk too much. Uh, he had some lovely tactical things that I would use and, and I did use when I was in, you know, working with Tommy as assistant manager. You know, that, that idea of playing Paul McGrath in the middle of the pitch, people question that why. You know, when he went into the World Cup in 84, he had to put Paul back in uh, to the back four. But he played Paul in there for a particular reason because when the full centre halves got pulled out, you know, the full backs were told they had to go and close down the white guys. That was their job. So if the ball's played the white guy, you just go, don't worry about anything else, close them. If the ball's played back and beyond you and the centre halves pulled out, Paul McGrath's job was just a slot back into the back four. So we always had a back four, really, really. And for me as a goalkeeper, brilliant. Brilliant defensively. Maybe it took away a little bit from our attacking ploy when we when we didn't have Paul higher up the pitch. But certainly it was brilliant defensive tactics for Jack. He knew it because he was a centre half, uh, and it meant also that the, the other centre half didn't have to switch across and the full back come in and leave yourself vacant at the back post. The other thing that I thought to Jack tactically before I talk about his leadership skills is that you know he had. A thing up front and you know we all know that John Alders didn't score that many goals especially early on uh, for us because 
John was a feeder away from goal to create space. So they, instead of playing ball into feet, we they would play ball down into into the corner, almost little in between the full back and the centre half, and they dragged the centre other opposing centre half out of position. And he also then told Quinn or Cass or whoever was playing alongside John to drag the other centre half to the back post just to create space to get the ball in there for midfielders arriving and it was a lovely little ploy because you had Andy Townsend who was a runner at that time Roy Keane was a runner used to get himself into the box and on, on occasions if the ball was overhead to the back post it was Quinny's job to knock it down to these players who were arriving so there were lovely little um, little tactical things that he had that I thought was 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 quite good and, and unique probably um, in many ways because nobody ever pointed these things out, even from free kicks, he had little things that he would do uh, that, that got us thinking. Uh, but what, what Jack did, what Jack did more than anything else was give us all responsibility, give us give us real responsibility. And, you know, I wrote, wrote about this and, and uh, I've talked about it before. I was in Scotland. Um, I wasn't, you know, when I got into the team initially, you were quite intimidated a little bit because you were you were the only one that was playing in the Scottish League. You weren't uh, in with the big boys down in England, um, and that you had to stand up for yourself. But as soon as Jack gave me the responsibility of taking everything defensively, you know, and he told me, he says, "You you you have to take it, son. You have to take the the, the defensive responsibility." But remember, you're all, always answerable to me. And what I did was I went with Jerry Payton, sat down, worked a plan for the wide free kicks, for the for the for the for the corners, from the direct free kicks, and then I conversed with, with Mick and Kevin, who was the other two big players that had to be in, in line with what we were doing, and then I had to go and, and and tell the players, not Jack, and not up on a board or not up on a on a on a, on a video screen or or something. I had to go around each player and tell them what the responsibility was where they were supposed to be, what their job was, and so on. Some, uh, some of course, and then you had to remind them on the pitch uh, during the during the game. So I I, I, I grew and grew in that responsibility. Um, and it was easy for me. And it almost was setting me into the role of being the coach on the pitch. So Jack gave us that responsibility. But what, what the other brilliant thing that Jack had, and this is getting into the leadership stuff, is that he communicated with people. He communicated with people in a very, very uh, kind of um, adult way. Um, he would come and talk to you. He also had little Charlie O'Leary that would give him a lot of insight into how the players were thinking. He would go out walking with Charlie and McBard, and he would give him a little bit of how the players were feeling. And then he would come and just chat to you in a normal way. Uh, normal way. We, we went off and we did loads and loads of things. And, and it was wonderful and he had a great sense of humour. You know, that was the other thing. He had a brilliant, brilliant sense of humour. And you know, and, and when we were going through probably some of the some of the, the more intense moments, maybe when, when we were leading into big games and all that. And I remember early on Jack would he was he would do his little team talk and then he would say, Right guys, he says if, if, if you do it today, he says and he would raise one finger up and say, I'll be up to me first million pounds. <laughs> and then as it went on the second year, I think it was two million and then <laughs> so on and so forth. So and it was a good laugh, you know, because he, he brought humour into it and, and he relaxed us and we had great fun with him. And and I think that's, the, that's what you need. Uh, you know, communication, guys, is the biggest thing of all. I think if, if you can't communicate with people, uh, and build relationships with people, they're not going to follow you. They'll, they'll do it for a while, but they'll turn off from you. And 
the other great learning point in this uh, is that I've listened to lots of top managers speak from my times in UEFA and so on, and, and uh, they've always, some of them always said that it's not the players who are playing that you have to worry about, it's the players who are not playing. And they're the ones that you have to talk to, and they're the ones that when the rest of the players are on a day off after a game, you're in working with on the pitch. And, and, and and, and keeping keeping them right, and they will lead to a really good squad. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, uh, last one for me, and it kind of goes alongside that. Uh, Christy Holly's put up on the chat. So in 1994, you had so much experience, and you mentioned there about um, obviously yourself as well, and McGrath, and you had Keen in that squad, and and uh, Ray Houghton. What differentiated Andy Townsend from the rest to lead him to be the captain? Andy had a brilliant sense of humour, uh, but he also had a, he, he was a good player. Andy was a good player. Don't don't underestimate how good Andy was. He, he, he came into the squad, but he united the, the squad together with his humour, um, and, and he was kind of a logical captain um, in many ways. Um, and I, I can't remember, actually, any of the players, the other players, almost resenting the fact that Andy was made captain because he had this brilliant relationship with, with, with all of them mm. um, and he was a runner he, and, and he wasn't that uh, a player who maybe sat in the middle of the pitch and made a pass and he, he could do that but I think what Andy had was he had legs and he could get himself into the box and so on and so forth but when, when it came off the pitch Andy was the guy you could sit all day and listen to Andy you could he, he, he had a he had a brilliant brilliant repertoire of, of stories but he also when it came to the sensible talk, he could he could uh, he had the ability to articulate himself in a way that maybe others couldn't. And, and Andy, no 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 issue with Andy whatsoever being the captain of that group. And you know, at that at that point in time, one of the one of the other things that you got to remember when when you have a really good team, you'll end up with five or six captains. You'll end up with five or six captains. They'll all they will all take their their moment to stand up and say something, or they will take their moment to be the one with responsibility. They'll take on the initiative on the pitch or off. You know, Roy was a captain. You know, Ronnie Whelan was a captain when he was there. Mick McCarthy was a captain when he was there. Uh, you know, Andy became the captain. Uh, you know, and I, I probably not if I wasn't maybe a goalkeeper. I had that bit of me too there, but. You know, wanting to tell and, and, and organise things. We had captains all around the place. Somebody had to toss the coin, of course, uh, and take take on that responsibility. But apart from that, uh, I think we had about five or six. Mm, brilliant. Brilliant. Okay, great. Great. John is going to pop in here and take, uh, if you've got a couple more questions for you, Pac, if that's okay. Yeah. Here he comes now. Hey, Packy, John here. How are you? Uh, Packy, can you hear him? I, I can't. No, I only can hear you. Uh, see. Can you hear me, Gary? I can hear you. Yeah, go on ahead, John. Then I'll just go back and ask him translate. Okay. So, going back to 1990, the World Cup in the, the Genoa Stadium against Romania. How did you feel when you came out on the field and you seen the stadium full of Irish fans? Probably similar to to '94 uh, then in in the Meadowlands in New Jersey. How did you feel? All right. So the question, Packy, is what were the feelings when you went out to the Genoa in Genoa with all the Irish fans? How did that make you feel with the four blocks of flats in the corners? 
<laughs> well, listen, the fans are huge. You know, everybody knows that. You know, I did talk about earlier about what Johnny Joel said, but the Irish fans have got that incredible uh, ability to light up any occasion. Um, and you know, when when I think back on, on on the penalty shootout, you know, we had we we had the advantage of having the Irish fans behind the goal, um, and they were. They were an incredible boost to us. You know, I, I do remember, and I, I again articulated in some of my stuff that when I walked behind after one of the penalties, I looked in the crowd and I seen a, a young man from Donegal from Dunlow, uh, one of my neighbours, uh, always fist pumping and and, and geeing us on. You know, and that was a real boost, a real boost to anybody. You know, um, and that so so the fans and you know think about it. I, I I actually go back a little bit also uh, to the early days when I got into the team. You know, when I was, I, I made my debut in 1981, uh, and then I only had nine games, uh, but I was on the bench for many games, traveling throughout Europe without success, without great success. You know, we didn't, we didn't qualify uh, during during that time, uh, and a lot of the fans would have traveled and traveled to places like Russia and so on, and and didn't have have probably they enjoyed themselves, but didn't have the, the, that sweet taste of of success. And I felt when we qualified. We probably qualified for the Euros in 1990. Uh, we were doing it also for that group of fans, uh, and they were, you know, they, they will tell you the stories. They will tell you where they were. They will tell you how important it was for them. So the fans, for me, is is what Ireland really is about. And one of one of the other things I'll say to you about, you know, I, I, when I worked with the FAI as technical director for eight years, I always had that feeling that you know the the FAI, and it's still my feeling, is that the, the FEI belongs to the people of Ireland. Um, they're there to serve the people of Ireland. Um, the board, whether it's technical director, whether they're there because of the people of Ireland. So when the people of Ireland come and support the, the team, uh, it's it's them as much as the players that are, are trying to win games. And it, and it rubs off on that. There's no question. Yeah, that was another question that, that people were putting in there. Would you be interested in going back in some capacity with the FEI? Uh, you know, first and foremost, you have to be asked to, to, to go back, and then you know it's, it's, it's difficult at the moment actually because they're they're. Uh, it looks like they're going to be cutting some jobs uh, because they have to. They're struggling financially, um, so I think there'll be people losing jobs more so than people getting jobs. Would would I would I go back? I would go back. I, I love football development. I love my time there. Um, I think we we had a great time for about. Probably for five, maybe five of the eight years. Um, I think when the stadium came on board and the, and the whole um, downturn came and the ticket situation happened, I think then we lost our focus and we lost really what we were about. Um, we, we were going great guns from a development point of view and from the football perspective internationally. Uh, the young teams were doing well, the players were coming in, and you know, I think when I left, uh, I think it was um, just Steve Stone had taken over. Uh, and then Trapattoni came in, and um, he he was doing okay. So football was going okay, but the stadium itself pulled pulled them pulled them down, um, and and that was a pity. That's a real pity. Um, and that, so when I go back, I would go back if it was the right thing to do. If somebody asked me, and I could see that they had a real vision of where they wanted to go, definitely in the football development side, that isn't a problem. Best manager you work with at Celtic, and why? Oh, that's, I've been asked that question many times, and it's difficult because I, I had, I had Billy, 
McNeil, he, he, you know, Juxian has signed me. Billy had taken over that summer when I arrived, himself and John Clark, his assistant. And Billy gave me my debut. He was a difficult man to, to work with in those early days because he was demanding again. Um, a big personality, huge personality. He was one that, that you know, held his chest out there. And, and uh, again, probably thought us a lot about uh, what it meant to play for Celtic Football Club. He didn't... Uh, he didn't allow you to to have any slack days, that's for sure. Uh, and it's difficult when you're a goalkeeper, um, and, and there are days when you don't play well. But so, uh, so I had my, you know, the issues. I had my probably many runs with Billy, but he always supported and he always kept me in the team, which was brilliant. I think when he came back the second time, I think he was a little bit more older. He had the experience of going down to England, and I was an older. I was twenty, sort of. Uh, seven, 28 years old when he came back and I was much more mature and the two of us then built a, probably a really good, strong, happy relationship uh, going forward and Billy became a great friend when he lived up here beside me up in, in Newton Mearns um, and uh, I must I must tell you uh, when, he, when he was struggling with Alzheimer's before he died uh, uh, Frank McAvenny, Andy Town uh, sorry, Andy Walker and Joe Miller and myself was going to take him out for a cup of coffee one day and uh, I couldn't go because I was away doing something with UEFA, and, but three boys still took him out. And he wasn't able to talk at that particular time. He was sitting in his wheelchair, but he could he could listen to the stories and all that. And at the end of the conversation, when they were about to leave, Andy, Andy Walker said to him, he says, uh, oh, Big Packy was supposed to join us today. And, and he went, Big Packy, hopeless. <laughs> 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 and that was the relationship that summed up our relationship but it was a great sense of humor he had to so but we had we had this fantastic uh, i suppose long time so that billy was was the man davy hay came in i must admit when davy came in in between both of billy's uh, stunts i probably relaxed and i probably played as well as i did uh under davy hay because he was a different type of manager you know, he was a much more laid-back type of manager, uh, even though he was ruthless, ruthless in his own way. But I think we could, I could relate to him a little bit because he was younger. Like Billy, or when Davy took over, he was in his, uh, you know, late thirties, I think, and 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 uh, you know, I was now older goalkeeper, uh, older one of the maybe leaders in the, in the dressing room too. So I could get on really well with Davy Hay. Um, and Davy still remains a great friend and lives up beside us here in Mertz too. That. So two, the two of them really, but I suppose then at the end of my career, uh, you know, Tommy Burns was, was my man because we were great friends. Uh, we were colleagues. We played together. Um, he took me back after Lou McCary had released me and um, he... Um, he gave me more responsibility as a, as a coach and uh, as a, and a player at the time. And I won my last cup medal uh, with Tommy. Uh, and then he brought me down to Reading as assistant manager. Um, so we had a really strong, healthy relationship, professional relationship, but also a friendship that, that was brilliant. Um, I haven't mentioned Liam Brady, of course. Uh, people will be wondering why. But um, Liam came in for that short period. Uh, in the 90s when probably it was tough for him Rangers were sending big players they were wanting things 
Um, I was in another team he left me out. Rightly so, probably the time I didn't think that he should have left me out because I wasn't used to it. But he probably should have left me out even earlier. Um, and uh, I were really I knew Liam from his time as a player. Um, he was also an agent for a little while, and he and he um, he um, negotiated my contract after the World Cup actually uh, for Celtic, and then became the manager. And I had a wee bit of a probably end up putting him into the job because I had mentioned to one of the directors uh, at that particular time that he would be interested in the job because he had said, stated that to me. Uh, and so I, I just felt that maybe we could have had a better relationship. And I talked about communication as a big thing in leadership and management. And I felt that Liam just maybe could, was too young and that his personality didn't lend himself to brilliant communication. He's an interesting character, Packy, because he's he's one of the best Irish players of all time, and he's he's done a brilliant job with Arsenal. Um, yeah. By the looks of things, under the surface or behind the scenes, and with what they've done with development. But I mean, what was he like from a? I know you said communication there, but was there a great football mind behind that, or you know, can you tell? Yeah, Liam Liam had a, a brilliant. Uh, knowledge of football you know you said if you talk to Liam and like, listen in case anybody thinks that I don't have a good relationship with Liam really I do because we are good friends and we speak and we meet each other at the odd time especially when we're doing some television work together and we have a sit down so that's not the issue um but what what kind of a little bit disappointed me was a little bit that when when he you know I was so excited about Liam Brady coming in because he was went to Italy he was out in a, in a top league, and, and he was he was working with the top players. He was playing with them and taking in, but he wasn't able then to translate maybe that back into uh, the job of Celtic Football Club, which was a bit disappointing for me. You know, um, I don't know. I have the theory maybe around it. I could be wrong because I remember Liam saying to me that that to go abroad uh, because I'd asked Liam about at the time maybe after ninety World Cup should it be time for me to move up, move on. My contract was up and what. Could I go abroad? And I would have loved to have gone abroad to learn a language, to bring the family, to play in a different environment and all that. But Liam said to me, listen, the first thing is that you've got to remember, if you go abroad, you've got to be a bit of a loner. You've got to be a guy who can handle his own his own company. You don't, you're not, you're not going to be out there talking to a lot of people because of language and so on and so forth. So, and, and Liam was that type of person. He was very much able to handle his own uh, his own kind of environment without having needing people around too much around about him, and that kind of translated back to then him as a manager because you know you didn't speak to Liam on a, on a you know I expected Liam maybe to reach out and, and we would have conversations about certain things I would fill him in, but that did that wasn't the case. Liam was very much um, a, a, you know a guy you might talk to once every couple of months, you know. Uh, even though he was your manager, I mean, I mean in a personal way. Um, so, so that that's that was a type of Liam, but but Liam was a has, has got a brilliant mind in him. Not unlike Johnny Giles in many ways when you talk about the game and and so on and so forth. So that, but you can talk all day about the game. You can give your opinion on the game, but it's how you get the best of players and how you actually translate that back into the players to to, to for them to perform. Is the, is the crux of coaching and the crux of management. You can't run onto the pitch yourself and do it. You've got to rely on not just 11, maybe maybe 14, 15 players to do it. Um, and that's that's the test of management and that's the test of, of really top-class coaches. If you can if you can do that, 
then you'll make it. Not you don't have to be the best player in the world to be able to do that. You need to know the game. You need to understand the game, but you need to be able to translate it back to the players for them to carry out the actions. I'd imagine that in your role with UEFA, you've you've seen a lot of environments and gone on visits. Who have you watched in that in the in the training pitch? Uh, communication with players and went wow that's different level well you know that, that's, a, that's a good question um i, I think i think what what when, when you watch coaches work there's no there's no real big signs behind it uh, you know the, the big change now and everybody knows this now doesn't be probably listening as coaches is that the game has changed you know we talked earlier about the goalkeeper's role within that you know and, you know, how, how does the goalkeeper coach now uh, perform? He has to be, be not just making the big saves at the right moment, which is still the critical factor, by the way. Um, you can't take that away from, from the goalkeeper. Uh, and But he has to also be the guy with the ball at his feet, the ability to pass the ball uh, around players, uh, penetrate passes, passes beyond up the strikers into areas. The players have got to so so all of that all of that so the game has changed completely from that perspective even the players i feel if you if you look at the game now and, and, and look at the game even six seven years ago the game has changed the speed of the game and if you look at pep guardiola and the way that but, but if, you, if you watch pep and i'm sure some of the guys have watched the uh, on prime time the or prime video whatever it is uh his the documentary about him he's so demanding on the players he is so, so demanding on them, but he gets the best out of them. He's able to communicate with them, but he puts them under pressure. And if they're not able to do it, they're probably out of that environment. He's got to get rid of them. Um, and that, and, he, and he, But he's able to buy the best players. Um, so it's buying the best, communicating with them, getting them on the pitch, really, really putting them into reality-based situations, really taking the game onto the pitch and training. And I think that's the critical factor. You don't have a lot of... A lot of um, probably uh, training sessions now, you know, because there's so many games. But every game training session matters, and it has to be. And then the link up between the coaching staff and what they're actually doing, communication before they go out, what they do on the pitch, making it real specific, making it effective, and then evaluating them afterwards. And that's how it goes. And then getting the players themselves to make their own decisions, getting them, and then how you. How you, so 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 the great managers probably don't say a lot and don't coach a lot now. They're almost delegated out to other other coaches. But when they do speak, and they speak probably a lot individually to the players and put their arm around them and talk to them, they have to make sense because players understand the game now. Okay, last couple easy ones. Best player played with. <sighs> There's so many, you know. I was I was so lucky. Listen, you know, but I've mentioned some of them already. You know, Liam Brady was a brilliant, brilliant player. Um, uh, I didn't play with Johnny Giles. He was retired, but I, I was in the squad. He managed a few times, but you could you could feel that he was he had everything. Um, and, and watching him play, he certainly had. Uh, Paul McGrath was probably world class, world class. He didn't train that hard, uh, but a physical specimen. Uh, he had the ability to get up above. You know, when, when you talk about, um, you know, centre halves, he had this ability to climb early and stay up there and almost use his body. And people would be trying to jump, and he, he would just head it. But he also could pass the ball a little and, and and do all those things. He had the fitness about him uh, and his strength. So he was a wonderful player. Read read the game brilliantly. 
Uh, Roy Keane was a brilliant player also. Made the game look dead simple. Made the game look simple. The great players do that. I remember talking to Michel Platini uh, out in, and, and, he, and he said that he could almost see pictures about two or three times ahead of other people. He knew what was going to happen. And I think great players do that. And Roy, Roy was one of them. But when I look at Celtic, you know, I was so lucky that, that Danny McGrain was there at the very start. I mentioned Danny already. Uh, and, and Danny was there to influence us young guys on and off the pitch. And he was a, he was a world-class player. You know, unfortunately, that he had injury and he was returning from injury when I, when I arrived there. But even then, he was still world-class. Paul McStay in the middle of the pitch, brilliant player. Paul had this fantastic ability to to take a ball under pressure and, and we were encouraged even in small set of games or, or in, in you know, 11 side training games to give him the ball, no matter if there was two or three players around about him because he had this ability to to know where the player was on his right side, he would move, turn on to his left, he would let the ball run through him, he would knock it back to the player, would give it to him if he was if he knew he couldn't turn, uh, maybe flick it around the corner and go for the other. Great players, you have gas guys, all of these do that. Paul had that ability. Maybe like a little bit of bit of speed um, uh, maybe for the modern game I don't know uh, but he made it look simple also um, Tommy Burns um, I was lucky also just at the end of, of um, probably my playing career that the Canio and Cadet and Van Hoydon came along you know but the Canio was special he was an entertainer to uh, a, brilliant, a brilliant player I don't know if I've left out some maybe but there were so many good players Charlie Nichols was fantastic when, when he came onto the scene first at Celtic not the quickest, but ability to score goals and entertain people. Fantastic. And which forward did you go, I don't fancy this today? <laughs> there was a few. Um, I think people ask me about internationally, I think Van Basten was probably up there with the best. Um, even though he didn't he didn't score a lot of goals against us, that's for sure, but you could you could see he was wonderful. Remember that goal in that final of the Euro 88? Mm. Uh, I remember... Uh, obviously, we were put out, and I went back to, to Scotland uh, in '88, and uh, I was travelling back to Donegal actually, and the final was on, uh, and I stopped um, in uh, in one of the villages on the way back. Just uh, and the game was on in, in, in the pub, and I went in. There was a kind of a petrol you could buy a petrol, but it was a pub too. So we stopped, and we had to go in and watch. It was just at the moment when he scored that unbelievable uh, volley over over. Probably the best goalkeeper I thought in the world at that time, Dasiaf uh, from USSR, and uh, so he was a wonderful player at, at international level. I'm not going to mention Scalacci or Baggio <laughs> or these. Guys. <laughs> um, you, I wonder shake when you mention Scalacci. Do you ever play against Maradona? No, well, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to research it because we played in, the, in a too long tournament uh, when I was. Um, a young man who was only 20 years old and played Argentina and I'm nearly sure Maradona might have been uh, in, in, in the squad at them. I'm trying to research that at the moment. So, But no, I, I missed out on, on the senior international game that he played against Ireland. Um, and then at club level, you know, funnily enough, at club level, you had people like McCoy's and that was, let's call him a pain in the butt. Uh, every time he was there to, maybe if you made a mistake, he was there to stick the ball in the back of the net. But the one that I found really difficult was Martin McGee. Uh, Mark McGee played for Aberdeen at the time and he was one of these players that um, the ball came off his knee, it came off his shin and that and he would he would he would find himself in a position to score. Um, and that we actually signed him then and he was a great colleague uh, and that but he was he was a real handful and a real strong, strong player uh, in those early days when we when we 
played Aberdeen in the eighties, which was a wonderful time when, when you were at Celtic because you had you had Albert Dean, you had Dundee United, you had Celtic and, and Rangers, but Rangers weren't that prolific uh, at the time. But the other two, Aberdeen and Dundee United, they were getting to European finals. Aberdeen had won the Cup Winners' Cup and Dundee United were in the final and had beaten uh, Munich, some of them, and beaten Barcelona. And we were there competing and and we should have we should have probably done better in Europe because we had we had the players at that particular time. Mm. Quality. Okay, last one. We asked this on, on all the, the interviews, Packy. What advice would you have for a young Packy Bonner, knowing what you know now? <laughs> uh, go mad. Go mad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 60 years old now and I haven't gone mad yet. So um, go to be a, be, a, be a Charlie Nexus or something. <laughs> no, really, uh, shouldn't say that. Uh, be single minded about it. You get one chance, you get one chance, uh, and you have talent. That's the first thing. Most young players have talent. Um, you, you know, it's a difficult, it's really, I don't know how you can you can really say to a young goalkeeper now um, that, you know, they have to be good, uh, great personality, they have to be composed on the pitch, they have to be able to control the ball, their left foot, right foot. They have to be able to make decisions under pressure. They have to make the big saves to, and work really hard. How do you fit all that into a young goalkeeper's development? It really takes a top coach to be able to do that and, and work with the goalkeepers on their own. But the first and foremost thing is the mental side. Can you handle the pressure? Can you be single mind? Can you really challenge yourself? Can you can you handle those challenges? You know, you know. One one of the other things I want to say to you on this is that. Um, and I don't know, and I know the American guys um, are into this in a big way of uh, self-awareness and personality testing and so on. Um, I, I was in a lot of work for young teachers, actually, uh, over the last probably five or six years, and they were coming out of college and they were going off to try to get a job different places and we were helping them and talking to them. And one of the questions I kept asking them, I said, do you know yourself? Have you done any personality profiling? And most of them said no, they didn't. So they didn't know their strengths and weaknesses, you know. And, and I, I'm a, I'm very much an um, an introvert, um, and I can I can give you that, you know, when I when I did the testing and so all that almost came out, and I said absolutely. As the years gone on, it's probably um, kind of gone a little bit more towards the the, the middle range of that. Uh, but in those early days, I was very much the other side. So I knew what I, what I was and, and, and you know, I could play in big games and all that, but my energy kept going down and down and I needed Donegal. I needed to go somewhere quiet. I needed to find my own space to build that energy back up. So you need to know yourself. And the other thing, I was very judgmental. That's not great for a, for a coach if, if you're judgmental of people. But I was. Maybe that was kind of ingrained into me when I was in Donegal to, to make sure that you, you didn't uh, get get duped or you didn't when you go to the big city you watch yourself <laughs> and so on so forth so I was always cautious um, and that so knowing yourself being single-minded working at it taking a chance listen also to the coaches uh, Shea Gibbon was fantastic at that he, he would look and stare you in the eye when you talk to him you know you get other people who maybe maybe you know culturally they you know, and I know with different cultures, that's not what you do. You, you have to look away and show respect. 
Um, but I, I just think about listening and taking in the information that the coaches are giving you. But because they've got more experience, the, the so on, you don't have to take everything, but at least listen, listen to it and try and take it on on board and, and, and go for it, go for it. Brilliant. Packy, great way to finish it. Thanks so much. Appreciate you coming on and all your patience with the technology. Uh, hopefully we could do it again. Uh, brilliant. Listen, I enjoyed it. I'd love to be able to have that audience in front of me and, and be able to interact with in a different way with them and let them see the, the, the balls of my eyes, as the man says, <laughs> me seeing them and, and have a bit of more fun around it. But uh, that's not to be. But yeah, technology is, is a wonderful thing when it works, but when it doesn't, we have to find other ways. <laughs> that's another thing. Uh, adapt or die, as Andy Roxbury used to say. Um, Man United Spurs prediction? Oh, that's a big one. Uh, well, you know, I grew up in Donegal um, and, you know, English football had an effect on us because that's all we got on TV. Um, and I, I became a bit of a Spurs fan when I was a young kid because of Pat Jennings. Uh, so I have a small soft spot for Spurs. Uh, all the Man United guys are probably giving out to me at this <laughs> point in time. But so I'll, I'll go for Spurs. Brilliant, brilliant. Paggy, thank you so much. We'll uh, we'll keep in touch and, and maybe we'll get you on again in the future. That's fantastic. Thank you. Pleasure. Good luck to everybody and I hope all, all your coaching career goes in the right direction, guys. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.